You get a call from your mom or your sister or your daughter lives in another state. It's not the best neighborhood. You can't get there quickly, but she, she calls to tell you she doesn't know what to do. Her front door was kicked in, and now she can't close it. She can't lock it for tonight. How do you feel? On an individual level, that's the phone call that Nehemiah got. And yet it's not merely for one home, one mother or sister or daughter, but it's for a city. Their front door has been kicked in. The gates burned. Walls, um, openings, breaches in the wall that you could drive trucks and tanks through. They, are, they have returned there from Babylon, but they are, they are helpless and vulnerable to the whims and uh, agendas of the people around them. They are being used and mistreated and abused. What are we going to do about it? What needs to be done? Do we care at all? That's, that's Nehemiah. Now, that's a long time ago, and that's a problem a long ways away. And what does it have to do with us today? We're going we're gonna to bridge that gap. There's some principles that we're going to learn out of Nehemiah that are, are going to relate to what we are doing together as a church, where we are going together as a church. It's going to relate to that chart that you just saw. But first, Nehemiah. When and where? When the the, the um, time era of Nehemiah is a little fuzzy for us. That's why you need that Old Testament overview class that is actually going to be going on this hour next week in that building over there. Get the books in the foyer. We are not selling books and making a profit, um, doing money changing in the temple and all that kind of stuff. We're actually selling them to those who signed up at a, at a discount uh, less than we purchased them for. So really, we're not selling books. We're giving them away. We're not just giving them completely free. That's my take on it anyway. That's, that's how I'm spinning that. But... but um, the era of Nehemiah, it's kind of a confusing time period after the exile and after most of the prophets, after most of the recorded history of the Old Testament, you have these books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They're called post-exilic, after the exile. And in this era, especially with Ezra, when you read the book of Ezra and you're trying to follow the history, it's confusing because Ezra jumps around a little bit. He's trying to paint an overall picture of the troubles that they're having, and he stretches way back and, and, and so forth and ties things together as if all that's happening now. And so I laid out a bit of an outline for you on the back of your bulletin. You have in the notes, from the captivity, what was happening and where Nehemiah, what is the background and where could you actually read that background in your Old Testament? So you have the captivity that occurs, Babylon captures Jerusalem, breaks down the walls, burns the gates, but then 538 BC, the Babylonian Empire is overtaken by the Persians and one of the first things that Cyrus does is he issues a decree that Israelites can return to Jerusalem. They can rebuild their temple. He says, build your temple so that there you can pray for me. Cyrus had an agenda, but that's all right. It was good for them to pray for him. 
That was part of the purpose of Israel was to be a light to the nations, to intercede for God for the nations. That all fits together. So they return to Jerusalem and they begin building. They lay the foundation of the temple, but they're discouraged and there's opposition. There are people and forces and agendas around them that do not want this to happen. And so the, so the building stops almost before it gets started. And then a little later, in 520, through the ministry of the prophet Haggai and some other circumstances, the people are stirred up again to build. God speaks to them through his prophet, and they return to the calling God had given them. They build and finish the temple. The temple is there, but the, but the city is still broken down. Further along, time goes by, and uh, there are attempts to rebuild the city, especially to close it in, to provide some security, to be able to close and lock the front door at night. But those attempts are, are objected to. There are political objections raised. There are others who are going to lose power if Jerusalem, or, or authority uh, if, if Jerusalem is able to stand on its own. And so they oppose it. They have their own agendas, how they want to continue to mistreat these people and use them for their own purposes. And so there's, there's, there's various lobbyists and lawyers and letter writing and environmental studies that are required. And all of these things hold off the rebuilding of the city. At one point in uh, 558 or so, Ezra has returned with another group of, of uh, exiles returning to Jerusalem. He sees the need. They set about trying to b build up the city again, and they're opposed. And the problem is other things going on at the time. A, a couple of years earlier, there's a rebellion in Egypt. And uh, the rebellion in Egypt against the Persian Empire now is in the, in the neighborhood of where Jerusalem is, as far as the Persians are concerned. And so now the, the Israelites are trying to rebuild Jerusalem and close its walls, and their enemies then send letters saying, these guys are trying to rebel against you too. They're going to be like the Egyptians. They are going to, when they build their walls and when they close in their city, then they're going to use that for their own purposes. They're going to rebel against the king of Persia, and you're not going to have any property in this province any longer. And so the king, Artaxerxes, the king under whom Nehemiah will serve, that king issues a decree that that, that rebuilding of the wall, the re restoring of the gates must stop. The, the city is to remain desolate because he's afraid of what they might do. So then we move along a little bit. Things have stopped uh, uh, based on the king's decree, and now we're wondering what is happening in Jerusalem now. And Nehemiah finally gets word when some of his own family members return. And he hears of the desperate situation in Jerusalem still. God's, God's uh, promise that they would be restored from captivity has happened. And yet they have been restored and yet live as refugees. They still live in ruin. And Nehemiah is burdened for his people, for their security, for their safety, for their identity, for their calling, and for their purpose. This is not what God called them back to Jerusalem to be or to do. And so now, the book of Nehemiah is a book about building up a people. Building up God's people for his purpose for them, for their calling. 
And it's about bringing hope. Yeah, there's building of walls. There's, there's, the, there's the restoration of a, of, of a city's identity and integrity so that it can be a city on a hill. It can be a light to the nations around them. But they need to first build up that own identity and realize who they are in God's calling and God's blessing. So it's a building up and bringing hope. That's the theme of the book of Nehemiah. And we're going to see that theme move back and forth with what I think is a great object lesson with the wall and the gates. But that centers around the building up, the restoration of this people into their purpose, into their calling. So we're building a wall, we're building a city, we're building buildings, we are building a people. And so it is today. There's, there's, there's not a church that thinks about building a building that doesn't do something in the book of Nehemiah as well. But the danger in that is we might think that the book of Nehemiah is all about leadership and logistics. It's all about construction and projects. When this book is about people. This book is about God's people and their purpose and their calling and being built up and restored to that. And so with that prologue, I want, to, I want us to turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to read chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Go ahead and take your Bibles out or grab one from the, from the bench there in front of you. Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, December, in the 20th year, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the king under which Nehemiah serves, as I was in Susa, the citadel, the fortress city, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed with fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah, first of all, we'll, we'll read more. We're actually going to get into the content of his prayer. But I wanted to pause there and catch up on the story so far. Nehemiah gets this report then back from some of his own relations who have returned from Judah and, and the area around Jerusalem. And now he has for himself a firsthand report of what's really going on, what's happening among the people there. There was probably that, that group under Ezra that left with all kinds of hopes and all kinds kinds of ideals about what it was going to be like. And they got into the midst of it. And they got stuck into it and they found out this is not going to be easy. And there are actually many around us who oppose us. They don't want what we want. They don't want what God wants for us and, and for them for that matter. They are against us. They have their own purposes, their own agenda that are contrary to the will of God and they are not hesitant to stand in our way and they have opposed any progress. And the people are suffering. They continue to live these returnees like refugees that God's children are as if they were homeless, orphans. Jerusalem, think of it, has become like Jericho. The walls broken down. The very beginning of their entrance into the land, 
has now become their own story. And indeed, it was a result of the sin of the nation. Their rebellion against their own God and Savior. Their rejection of his ways for their own ways and pursuing the idols of the Canaanites has led them to the same lot in life as those Canaanites. Jerusalem looks like Jericho. And yet in the midst of that, God's mercy is not ended. God's mercy is not done. These are yet God's people. And yet they face trouble. They face evil around them that would oppose them. They face opposition. And in the midst of that trouble, they have forgotten God's joy and God's blessing. They are shamed, perhaps by their own failure to do and accomplish that what they've set out to do. Have you experienced that where, where you have not measured up to your own expectations and you, and you feel shame yourself? Or you're quite certain that others are looking down on you, that their judgment is on you, that they are so disappointed in what you have not been able to do or accomplish. They've forgotten their real identity in the midst of their circumstances. They have forgotten that they are God's people, that they are His chosen for God's calling and God's purpose. They're vulnerable, they live in fear and anxiety of who's going to ride through those breaches in the wall next. Who's going to come storming in those gates and steal what? Or, or take advantage of who? Fear and anxiety and insecurity has caused them to, to lose sight of faith. They are not a people of confidence and hope, even as God's church should be. A people of, of faith and confidence and hope. Knowing our identity, secure in our, own, in our own identity and in his calling for us. But in the midst of a broken down world, it's easy to lose sight of that. And so what does, that, what does Nehemiah do first? Well, Nehemiah, as we're going to get to at the end of the chapter, Nehemiah is the cupbearer for the king. And don't think of that as just a butler. Don't think of that as when, 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 when the king wants a cup of tea, you know, that Nehemiah is the guy that brings it. No, no, it's much, a cupbearer was much more than that. A cupbearer was, was a confidant. A cupbearer was, was often in the king's presence, perhaps more than any other single person. The king, the cupbearer was a non-political person. His sole focus was not any agenda or ambition other than the king's own personal safety. His job was to protect the king even from ambitious officials close to him, even perhaps a prime minister who would desire to be king instead and might attempt to poison him. And the cupbearer was the last line of defense. He was in on a lot of conversations. He was not to have an agenda of his own, but he did often provide counsel, insight to the king. So he's an important person, Nehemiah is. He knows the king personally, and there's a need. And when you know a guy, what are you tempted to do? Well, we should go to the king with this. The king could help with this. But that's not what Nehemiah does. Because Nehemiah knows a better guy. Nehemiah knows his Lord. He has not in all the riches of the palace forgotten who he truly belongs to. He has not in his loyalty to Artaxerxes forgotten that he is a child of the Lord. 
And that's where Nehemiah goes first. He asks God before he asks the king. What do we do? Do we tend to rely on our own resources first? The connections that we have, the resources that we can marshal? Or do we first ask God, God, what would you have us to do? Lord, how will you provide here? Lord, we need you to intervene. Because truly in Israel, Artaxerxes could build a wall. But Artaxerxes cannot build a people. God's going to have to do that. And that's what Nehemiah desires to do. And so Nehemiah commits this, first of all, to prayer. Now, granted, there's some danger in him, not unlike Esther, to go before the king with this request of a people who were seemed or, or suspected of perhaps being disloyal and to, and to um, intercede on their behalf to lobby for their request. That could be dangerous to Nehemiah because he's supposed to be above any suspicion of involvement in any agenda. So there could be some danger there as well. But Nehemiah, first of all, prays. And he doesn't just, I prayed about it. Okay, now what should we do? No, he prays and he prays and he prays and he continues in prayer and he prays and he fasts and prays about four months. And I imagine he's praying, Lord, would you open a door? Would you provide an opening where the king would ask of me and I could give an answer? Lord, would you prepare the heart of the king, as Proverbs says, to be like channels of water under your direction that you would direct her where you would have? Lord, would you intervene? Would you intercede? Would you give me favor in this request? Father, would you do here what I am not able to do? He doesn't just pray once. He prays and prays and prays. It's not one and done. You know, there are circumstances and situations in life. There are things that you have prayed for and you haven't heard the answer yet. Continue in prayer, God's Word tells us. Continue to pray. There are, there are needs that are long-term. There are issues that are not single-day issues. They continue over time. And you're in the midst of them. Things like cancer or covid Things like prodigal children or a marriage that is not right or addiction within the family. It's not vain repetition to continue in prayer asking God to intervene for that one that your heart is so burdened for. In fact, Nehemiah joins in their deprivation. He joins into their circumstances. He continues in prayer with fasting. What's the purpose of the fasting? The self-denying of himself. I'm not saying he's not eating for four months. But he's denied himself of something, even as Daniel had the same pattern. Daniel started early as a teenager, you remember. He fasted, committing himself to bread and vegetables and water. He would not eat the king's meat and the king's delicacies. We don't know what it is that, that Nehemiah is depriving himself of, but it's something that continues to remind him of his more important purpose in prayer. One of the benefits of fasting it is, is a denial of our flesh and thus a discipline or a training, a strengthening of our spirit. Are there things that you have urges, desires, longings, appetites for that in your natural humanity, things you, 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 you want, you crave, you, you, you can't say no to? 
And we need the ability to, as Paul says, to buffet our body, to discipline our body, to train it, to make our body, our flesh, our mortality, our slave, our servant in God's purposes. One of the ways that you train your body, you say no to the desires of our fleshly mortality, is in fasting. Because hunger is a normal, it is a normal characteristic of our mortality. The stomach wants what the stomach wants, right? Well, tell it no for a day or two. And you'll have its attention. But you're strengthening your ability to deny your flesh for a spiritual better. That's simply good training. It's good spiritual exercise. At the end, if the essence of our fallenness is self-centeredness and self-serving then one of the aspects of the Spirit-filled life is a life in self-control. And self-control is saying no to my own desires. We need to exercise that spiritually. Nehemiah does in prayer and fasting. Now, when Nehemiah prays, well, how do I pray? Just for whatever I want? That seems to kind of go against the whole fasting thing, right? I'm training myself to deny myself, and yet I'm praying for whatever I want. No, Nehemiah is praying according to God's promises. Nehemiah's prayer, in fact, we're going to see it's a covenant prayer. I want to give this to you in advance, this this service. That Nehemiah is praying to a covenant-keeping God. He says, God, I know you keep your covenant, that you are steadfastly loyal to your covenant promises. And Israel, these are your covenant people whom you made a covenant with, with Moses at Mount Sinai. And you told us what we are going to do in the book of Deuteronomy. You told us we would wander. You told us we'd go our own way. You told us what the covenantal consequences of that would be, that we would be then denied the land. We would be kicked out of that land, which was your blessing to us, because of of our lack of faithfulness. And that out of the land, in exile, when we returned to you in our hearts, when we again called upon you, when we confessed our sin before you, you would, in mercy, restore us back into that place of blessing. You'd restore us back into that land which you have given us. All of that's in the book of Deuteronomy. Before they ever started in the land itself. And he's going to pray according to that covenantal promise knowing that God keeps his word, that God keeps his promises. And we're also going to then have to explore, well, is that the same way then that we would pray? Let me read from verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 1. And I said in my prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the one true God, the most high God, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast or loyal love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eye open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. 
They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power, by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So Nehemiah is voicing on behalf of Israel. He is interceding for Israel and it is a covenant prayer. On the basis of our covenant with you through Moses, Lord, we ask you to intervene for us. Is that the same way we would pray? As we read that prayer, we find if we would return and if we would keep your statutes and your commandments and your rules and do all of the things, then, God, you will restore us and bless us. Is that the way that we should pray? You know, early in the Christian church, early in the age of the apostles, that was a serious question because the, the, the church is born out of a Christian out of a Jewish heritage, out of an Old Testament heritage. And so there was a familiarity with the law of Moses as the normal means of living in God's will. And it became an issue at times such that the Apostle Peter had to stand up in a meeting and say, why would you put a yoke upon these new believers that we, neither we nor our forefathers were able to bear? Why would you tell them to keep the law which we in our own experience have never been able to keep? That there is no righteousness for us according to the law, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. The book of Galatians is written because the new young churches of Galatia, one of Paul's first mission fields, have been told by others that now that they are believers in Jesus and in the Lord, they need to follow Jesus by keeping the law, even to the point of what they eat and don't eat, and even to be circumcised. It was an issue in the early church because they come out of a Jewish heritage. We easily almost take it for granted. No, no, we are not under law, Paul says, but under grace. That's how we live. That's the means of our acceptance and our relationship with God. So then what do we do with Nehemiah's prayer? Well, let's back up a step. What does Bob do when he's approaching the text and forming a sermon? What will you be taught to do if you're registered for this first version, this first offering of the How to Study Your Bible class? And don't worry, if the class is full and you didn't get in, we'll be offering it again this year. It'll be offered a second time in the alternate hour. You'll have a chance. You'll have a chance next year. We're, gonna, we're committed to doing this a while. But let me give you a teaser into that class. You always start with the historical text in its context. You always start there. Understand where Nehemiah is situated, what's going on in history, what covenant is he operating. Out of that, we now can form some theological truth, some theological principles that will always apply. They're going to be less specific than this historical example because they're going to be theological truth that will apply for all time, anybody in relationship with God. Well, in Nehemiah, in a setting, out of exile, returned to the land, according to the covenant with Moses, Nehemiah is praying that they would, as they do, keep God's commandments, rules, and statutes in faithfulness to the Lord, that the Lord would also return his blessing in faithfulness to them. They are, Nehemiah is praying to a covenant God 
for a people in covenant relationship with him based on the covenant that God made. There's the principle. God is a loyal, faithful, covenant-keeping God who makes covenant with humanity, with peoples, by which on the basis of that covenant we have relationship with God. Okay, how do we take that theological principle and move it now into today? What do you do with it? Well, the first question you got to ask, is God still a covenant-keeping God? Yes, He is. Does He still relate to us? Do we have access to God in relationship with Him through a covenant with Him? Yes, we do. The question becomes, which covenant? You see, there's a series of covenants that God makes with humanity from the, from the covenant with Noah to the covenant with Abraham to the covenant with Israel through Moses to when Jesus comes and Jesus lives through the gospel. Do you realize that Jesus is still living under law? Do you realize that Jesus himself as a human is living under the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God makes with Israel through the law of Moses? That's why the Pharisees keep asking him about Did you wash your hands before you ate that? Are you supposed to do that on the Sabbath? I know moms are going to hassle their kids about washing hands, but probably not nearly as much about doing things on the Sabbath, at least on Saturday, okay? Some things have changed along the way for us. Well, at the end of Jesus' ministry in the gospel, what does he say to his disciples gathered in the upper room? He says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you for the remission, for the forgiveness, for the removal of your sin. Jesus inaugurates a new covenant in his death for us and his resurrection. That new covenant has not yet been fully realized, but it will be. And we all, we today, among all nations, both Jew and non-Jew, among all nations are already participating in a new covenant that will also be participated in fully by Israel at his return, at Jesus' return. So we are participating in relationship with God, the covenant-keeping God, but on the basis of a new covenant. And now I want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 is one of the expressions of the new covenant. There are two. Jeremiah 31, and then the other one is in, uh, uh, well, well, it's all through the scriptures, but, but another uh, kind of classic place where the new covenant is, is unfolded in the Old Testament in the prophets is Ezekiel 36. So we'll, we'll turn to Jeremiah 31. And what I want you to notice here as I read these four verses is how many times God says, I will, count those with one hand, And on the other hand, I want you to count how many times does God say, you will or you must. Okay? Look for what God promises to do for us and look for what we must do for God to fulfill this covenant. Rather, Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, like the covenant that I made with their fathers... On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. That was the covenant with Moses. They makes with them after he takes them out of Egypt. The covenant which they broke, they could not keep. Even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The new covenant, which is where we get our New Testament, was intended to replace the old covenant, which was obsolete and beginning to fade away. Not that there was anything wrong with God's law. Not that there was anything wrong with that old covenant. But he says, but finding fault with them, he promised a new covenant. The writer of Hebrews chapter 8 says, So we approach God. Our relationship with God is based on a new covenant. Where am I going with all that? Okay, we're not old covenant law. We are new covenant indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, whom Jesus says it is good that he goes away in death so that the Holy Spirit can then come and indwell us. And in that indwelling, because all my sin has been removed by faith in Christ, there's nothing that hinders or separates me from relationship with God so that God is able to some, come so close as to actually dwell within me by his Spirit. That's the new covenant. That is richer, deeper, fuller than anything Israel ever experienced. And that's how we would repeat Jeremiah's prayer. We would pray like Jeremiah prayed, calling on the covenant God who will keep his faithfulness to us. But not on the condition of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. I can set aside my shame and my guilt in confidence that in his new covenant, my sin is indeed forgiven. And when I have sinned again, and there it is in my face, and somebody points it out or I see it in myself, and guilt comes and shame again rises, there I can say, God, you are the covenant God who sent your son Jesus to take away my guilt, to take away my sin, to bear it himself so that I could be fully accepted before you. Thank you for your forgiveness of my guilt, for my sin. I lay it aside trusting Jesus. That's a new covenant prayer. How about identity? In the midst of broken walls and, 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 and the world crushing in around us, Oh God, you have given me a new identity as your own children. You have given me a, a new identity. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the very sons of God. God has made us his own. Ephesians chapter 1 starts out chock full of this is who God has made you to be in Jesus. You have a new identity. You are not yet what you will be, but you are no longer what you once were in faith in Christ. And it's good to remember that in prayer. It's good to remember that when shame or failure press in around you. And what about fear? God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God has given us his own spirit within to save us and to keep us. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding is yours. It will guard your hearts. It will garrison. There is your citadel. 
instead of insecurity. We have hope. We have confidence in the true and living God that everything he says he's going to do, he will do. And so I can read the book of Revelation and know that Jesus is coming and know that it will be worth it all when we see him. That is our confidence in a new covenant prayer. Nehemiah reminds us to pray. And Nehemiah reminds us to pray according to what God has said, according to God's promises, according to his covenant that he has made with you and who you are in Jesus. Not in the midst of the circumstances, not in the midst of the evil, not in the trouble. That does not define you. Your identity in Jesus defines you. That's what Nehemiah teaches us. And that by that new covenant, by that indwelling of the Spirit within us, we can live out the heart of the builder. You know, Nehemiah here does some things in his prayer. His identification with the people in their sin, I thought, I thought Nehemiah was a pretty, pretty upstanding guy, right? And certainly Daniel before him, we have the track record of Daniel's life, and Daniel's a good guy. And what does Daniel say? He confesses his sin along with the sin of Israel before God. Nehemiah and Daniel both identify themselves with the sin of the people whom they are praying for. Jesus did that too. Do you remember when Jesus comes down to be baptized? John is baptized, and it's a baptism of repentance where the people are repenting of their sin and their guilt, and they're indicating that they need to be washed by God. They're indicating that, in in essence, they need to go through Jericho again, or, or rather, go through the waters of the Jordan again. They need to be cleansed. They are in the same condition as Naaman the leper in the Old Testament, a Syrian, a Gentile outside the covenant, who needed to be immersed, to be washed, to be dipped in the Jordan River. And that's what John is telling the Israelite nation that they need to do. They're guilty before God. And, and Jesus comes down the hill. And what is John? John says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you doing here? Yeah, I'm supposed to point to you, but, but, but you... You don't need to be baptized in this baptism of repentance. And Jesus says, he says, in fact, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But let, let's do, do this, John, for all righteousness to be fulfilled. Because for all righteousness to be fulfilled, Jesus is going to identify with us in our sin. He's going to take our sin upon himself. And he's going to die for that sin, that guilt in our place. Jesus identifies himself with those he intercedes for. Imagine that he does the same thing when he's praying for you at the Father's right hand. He identifies with you as his own as he intercedes for you. He doesn't say, God, Father, I know, I know Bob is a screw-up. I know we've been down this road with him before, but wouldn't you please, because I'm asking, wouldn't you please forgive him again? That's not how Jesus prays for Bob. Bob is a screw-up. That part's true. But that's not how Jesus prays for me. Jesus prays for me, Father, he's my own. Father, you gave him to me. Yeah, he's, he's not there yet. But we're going to bring him there. Remember, you said you, you, you put your spirit in him just so that he would walk in your will. He's yours, Father. Thank you for forgiving him in my sake. That's how Jesus prays for you. Nehemiah expresses the heart of God 
like Jesus, for people when he identifies himself with them for their benefit. Hey, Susa is fine. Nehemiah lives in the palace. Nehemiah lives in Susa, the citadel city, the fortress city. There is no place safer. Those people in Jerusalem, the walls are broken down, the gates are burned. They're worried about who's busting in tonight, but nobody's worrying about that in Susa. Nehemiah could say, hey, sorry, sorry to hear about your troubles. I'm glad, I'm glad life's not like that here. I thank God for the blessings we have. That is not Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah, in all the privilege that he has, he identifies himself. And he's, he's willing, in fact, to lay down the palace life. And he's, able to, he's willing to step down and to make the journey to Jerusalem and to live there in the ruins, in the rubble, among the people for their sake. Who does that remind you of? Who else do you know that left glory in order to step down into this broken rubble of earth and humanity and here to live amongst us for our sake? Nehemiah shows us something of Jesus. And my point there would be that so can any new covenant child of the king who will follow his example in a new and better covenant to pray for, to come alongside, to identify with, even to give yourself for the needs of others around us. Oh yeah, we'll pray for the needs of others. We will seek as a church to build up one another as followers of Jesus. We will seek as generations before us who joined in Nehemiah's examples and this building that we, this, this building that we now worship in, the building over there that we'll have classes in, the building over there that our kids' ministries occur in, most of us here gave nothing for the building of any of those buildings. Another generation saw us and gave us that. Gave us a family home. Gave us a place to live. Yeah, we will have opportunity to lay down what we have for the sake of others and for the sake of those who will follow us as the Lord tarries. But overarching all of that, we will lay down ourselves. I will give of myself. You will devote yourself in, in various ways and all kinds of manners for the spiritual blessing of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the heart of the builder. That here in Nehemiah, in his faith in you, in his willingness to give of himself for you, Father, we see something of our Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for that reminder of a covenant faithful God. And Lord, I can't help but think of the need to be sure this morning that each one here knows that covenant relationship that they can have with you, a right relationship with you through faith in Jesus. So, Father, I would want to lead all of us in a reminder of that right now. God, I believe you concerning your son, Jesus, who died in my place to take my guilt and to restore to me right relationship with you as my creator and as God my Father. 
I believe you concerning Jesus for my eternal life. Father, thank you for that this morning. And Lord, would you help us to also be willing to identify ourselves with the needs of others, to get personally involved with those needs of others, the people around us who also need you and also need to know you more fully. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.